It's Saturday morning. That means it's time for Mike Onesco's Renegade Rock here on the Rogue Radio Podcast Network, bringing you all the great music every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And now we've added interviews. We have Ainsley Dunbar up. We have J. Jesse Johnson, David Reese. We have Bobby Caldwell. Davey Patterson is up and running. Mike Varney is up and running. Greg Chason is up and running. And now we have a Cleveland legend, local Cleveland legend, Herman's Herman's guitarist, Billy Sullivan. Welcome to Renegade rock billy thank you mike great to be here boy it's really cool to have you on the show i've I really uh dug having you on the on the new guitar me record you're a mind-blowing guitar player you really are thanks for having me i saw uh, when i saw you post those clips and all my friends on there and i'm like man i want to get in on that <laughs> <laughs> well i'm really glad you did because truly i was blown away I, I was telling my friend this morning i was up until that point i really never heard you play uh that much you know and and uh, and I just saw you on the Herman Sermons thing, and, and you came down into the studio and just ripped. I was just like, whoa. Man, thanks. So, Billy, how did you get, who was the guy that made you uh, want to play guitar back in the in the 60s or 50s when you were a young man? I would say growing up, you know, I'm the youngest of six in my family, and I grew up in the 60s. Great time. It, yeah. You know, my all my older brothers had, uh, I remember my brother had Rock in the Film or Humble Pie. What a great record. That was that was a big album for me. Really? That's great, man. Because that was, my mom was a musician. She she, but she never pursued it professionally, but she had it. That's a different story altogether. And what, what did she play? Well, she played piano. She played guitar. She taught me my my first three chords. Wow. That's where you got your talent from then. She taught me E, A, and that cool B7. There's this guy, <laughs> B7. You know, the, the claw looking one. Right, right. Uh, but, you know, it came from her and it came from, you know, the record collection. I remember my brother having that rock in the Fillmore album. And uh, I just mesmerized of like, okay, on the left side of the speaker i think that's that it's his name is peter frampton and then the right side of the speaker steve marriott and, and stuff and uh it was it was it's it's a classic what one, one of the greatest live albums of all time i think absolutely absolutely so that got you sparked and you were like this is what i want to do right yeah i mean i mean all of that was happening around the same time you know you had bands like aerosmith i mean i was weaned on beetle records so i learned how to play listening to those records and picking up chords and after my mom showed me the first three and by that time at your age then the cleveland scene was already pretty established right oh yeah yeah, I mean, by, by the time I got in, uh, it was 75. By the time I actually started playing in bands and actually started playing out, it was around 1975. Great year. I was messing around with the guitar from the early 70s and stuff, and when I finally kind of got the hang of it by listening to records and picking things out and, you know, listening to, again, I, I keep referencing uh, referencing uh, the Humble Pie record, but like the opening riff, the Four Day Creep. Yeah. It's like, oh, I, I, I figured that out on my own. I can't believe it. <laughs> well, you can hear it in your playing. You just really rip. I mean, I can tell that you're, you were honed on the hard rock. Absolutely. I mean, when we all, I think when we all started, my first bands were like power trios. So we were doing anything that we could do that a trio can pull off. You know, we were doing like right, right. entros and stuff. And, you know, our voices didn't change yet. So we can actually sing high. Yeah, right. <laughs> so puberty, puberty sat in and all of a sudden we had to change the direction. Yeah, <laughs> least, you got to start playing different tunes, right? But yeah, I mean, it was a great era. I mean, that was happening. You had, you had, Montrose, you had Humble Pie, you had, as far as the hard rock, you had Sabbath. And MMS was in his heyday back then, you know. Rush, 
they were the first ones to play to get on the uh, Rush's early records. They essentially broke Rush. Cleveland did. Yeah, they did. That's that's true. I remember seeing that on the back cover of the very first Rush album. I think they uh, mentioned they, that uh, Donna Halper uh, was the DJ. She was like the first American DJ to play a, a, a working man, and uh, and that was here in Cleveland. So, what was the name of your first band that you joined? We were called Deuce. Or did you form your own band? No, I actually was. It was. Uh, it was a uh, it was a band of two two of the kids I went to school with. They already had it together, and uh, they invited me to come over, and we just kind of messed around. I had I had a probably at that time I had a, a JC Penny Pencrest amplifier. <laughs> <laughs> I had a Pencrest stereo tape recorder. Don't laugh, they're great. It had, it had hey, it had tremolo on it and reverb. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and I had some this Tysco guitar that my cousin gave me. Uh, well, that was my first guitar, and and uh, once we started wow. Wow. Figuring things out, and actually, uh, I uh, I eventually got like a copy, an Aria copy Les Paul that was a bolt-on neck, and the, and the, my first real amplifier was the Earth Earth Head. You know the, the you know the Earth. I remember that, those, yes. <laughs> uh, and I, and I plugged it into two. I don't know how how we found these probably at a flea market or something these 212 jensen cabinets guitar cabinets that were triangular and blue sparkle it, it was great looking on stage you know that the, the, the earth head kind of sat on on both the top both the cabinets and uh that was so it was like my introduction into almost a 412 situation in the earth head when you and there was i think it was probably 30 or 40 watts or something, so it broke up right at it, it, right at the right time. Yeah, at the right volume. Right. You know, we were playing Kiss songs and it, whatever Aerosmith songs we can we can muster up for a trio. I mean, that was kind of the. It seemed to be the go-to as far as you know. Aerosmith was there. Probably there was their Toys in the Attic was probably just came out. So we opened the show with "Never Again Without You." That was long before "Never Again Without You," right? Oh yes, yes. Now that yeah, that was long. Before. Well, we have to talk about that song in a few minutes. Okay, but back to the story of the, the your first band. Yeah, I mean, we started playing Battle of the Bands here in Brook Park. Or I, I was from Brook Park. Yeah, you know, they they had these Battle of the Bands at the Brook Park Armory. And you know everybody, every it's like either you played sports or you had a garage band. So exactly. There were tons of garage <laughs> bands, and uh, and we end up playing and uh, end up playing dances like CYO dances. The high school dances. This was a trio, right? A trio? Yeah, the trio. We actually got to the point where we won a battle of bands out in North Olmstead, and the, and one of the prizes was how cool is that, huh? Yeah, we we uh, we got to play the corral. Nice. Uh, that was a that was a rock club, and because uh, what was uh, Walt Maskey and Fred Laponza, they were the judges of the, of this battle of the bands, and we won. And they said, uh, yeah, you got you guys can play our club. And uh, I said, that as well. I said, well, you know how old we are. You know, I think I was 14 at the time, 13 or 14, you know. But uh, we they used to have a teen night on Tuesdays. And the established bands would play on on the uh, Tuesday nights. And they let us open for one of the bands on the, on the teen. That's pretty cool. So that was a great opportunity for a young teenage rock band getting its start. And you're, you're kind of in, in front of this audience. So there was plenty of opportunities and plenty of people to play to back then. Was that over on the east side? This was on the west side. Uh, the crowd was in Olmstead Falls. Wow. See, I was in California from 72 to 97, so I missed all those bars and clubs and Yeah, that was that was that was probably the first the the, the first 
rock club that I played. And that escalated up into we played other places where those same bands would let us open. There was a place on the east side, the, the Longhorn, that was in Maple Heights. Um that the band East Wind used to let us open for them. They were like the house band at that place. So just doing gigs like that and playing the, the rec centers and uh, the Battle of the Bands, whatever whatever we can get get in front of, you know. So, so how long did that uh, band last before uh, you moved on to your next project? Uh, I would say up until ninth, I uh, probably 1979 is when that band split up. It went through a name change and a different drummer, and uh, I happened to put an ad in the paper in the, in the Cleveland Plain Dealer or, or the Classifieds. Uh, it might have been the Cleveland Press, whatever the Friday paper. I put an, uh, uh, an ad in looking for top-notch professional musicians. <laughs> and one, you know, I'm a kid, mind you. Right, right, right. To me, I, I just wanted to be in an established band that was playing around the city. Any any aspirations farther than that? Uh, I didn't really look any farther than that at that time. I just wanted to get out. You weren't thinking about making records or anything like that, right? That world seemed to be a million miles away at that point. But uh, but the person that answered the ad was Tom Chris. And Tom Chris was the original bass player of the James Gang. He played on the first album. No way, really? And Tom, at that point, he was already probably at that point, well, he was probably nine years out of the James Gang at that point. He relocated to Chicago, and I guess he just moved back. And he answered the ad. He showed up at my parents' house. My parents' house, he showed up with two Sherwin Vega bass bins and a trainer <laughs> bass head and, and, and his jazz bass. And Tom looking like he always did. He had the black hair with the mustache and right. you know, and stuff. And he kind of looked at us like, uh, you know. Black. What's going on here? How, how old are you? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm 19, which technically I was 15 at the time. Oh, man. I, I I was that determined to get in this get something going. We rehearsed a couple of weeks, and then he then he calls and says, "Look, I I got this job offer. I, I'm I'm going to road manage this guy from Monkey Cole named Paul Pope. He's going off. He's leaving the band. He's going on his own. He's got a record deal still with 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 Janice Records at the time. That sounds familiar, Paul Pope. Yeah, he was he was the lead singer uh, uh, and guitar player of of uh, Monkey Cole. They were a Lorraine County band that was right around the time when you left. It was that they were around 72 through up to about 79 wow okay but paul was you know they were i could say he was very influenced by alex harvey and zal clemenson because paul did the mime and stuff and he kind of made his own little character uh, out of doing that uh but anyways tom got the road manager gig for for him he just he wasn't even playing bass so fast forward two weeks down the line, I get another call from Tom saying, look, I'm in the band now and we're auditioning guitar players. So he go, so I, ah. so I got a, the funny thing was, you know, my my mom drove me to the audition. No way. <laughs> at, this, at this point, I had a Marshall 412 cabinet and, and a top and I had a Les Paul. So you were set. You were ready. I was ready to go. They they looked at me kind of odd, like, why is your mom drop, dropping you off? <laughs> I'm lugging, you know, lugging my 412 cabinet down this basement stairs to the, where we where they were rehearsing, and we played a couple things. Uh, I think we probably ran through like maybe Rocky Mountain Way or whatever we could, so they could see that I can play. And then Paul says, "This is the deal, you know. I do I do my own stuff. I was from Moki Cole. I still have the record deal with Janice, although that didn't last long. But long story short, he was going on his own. He had 
management. Tony Rico was his manager at the time, Jericho Management. And they said, this is uh, this is what we're doing. We like how you play. And then uh, they called me the next day and said, you got the gig. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it w- once he told me the plan, the plan, they were going on, on the road. So this wasn't local. They were it, Paul's big area uh, was Western New York, you know, Buffalo, Rochester, Jamestown. Right. The, whole, the, the I-90 circuit, what they used to call. So I had a dilemma. So I had to kind of tell my folks, look, I got this job. I got the gig, but they're going on they're going on tour so i'm saying bye-bye they're going on the road it was one of those things that was a hard decision did, did you do it at that point i was in i was a sophomore in high school at oh that point. man when i talked to my mom was basically being said the musician and the mus, mus, musician heart and soul that she had she was like go for it but my dad was like all reserved i would have had to quit school and i did quit school for that job for that gig and I think it was my guidance counselor at high school. He told my parents, "This is look. Why else is he here? He's here to find a. Uh, he's here for to get an education for work, and he's got a job offer right here. So it was one of those. That was the selling point of my parents to let me quit. There you go. That's pretty cool. May or at the end of that school year, '79, and I uh, we were off and running by June first. And what was the material like? Paul's material was it was harder bass rock, but like in the vein of like. Uh, it was melodic. We did some rockers, but I, if, if if I were to compare his songwriting, it would have been kind of like maybe Tom Petty-ish, maybe kind of Tom Petty before Tom Petty. That's pretty cool. That's a great story. Yeah. So it was rock kind of. We had even had a couple heavy things, uh, but it was still. But 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 the majority of his songs were kind of like very pop rock. Not maybe not necessarily power pop, but kind of just pop rock for the time. Cool. So this is Michael Nesco. You're listening to Renegade Rock here on the Rogue Radio Podcast Network. We're talking to Cleveland legend, Herman's Hermit's guitar player, Billy Sullivan, and we opened the show with a tune called Never Again Without You, but now we're going to take a little break, and Billy played on uh, my Michael Nesco's Guitar Me record, The Last Solo. He's on a track called Loving You with Craig Erickson, and we're going to play that right now, and we'll be right back with more Billy Sullivan.
Hi, this is Mike Onesco. We're back with Billy Sullivan, Cleveland legend. Billy, you smoked on that track. I'm telling you, thank you for playing on my record. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a total blast, and especially the live presentation of it too. It was a that lot was of fun. crazy. That was really fun. So that was great. So let's go back to the song that we opened the show with, "Never Again Without You." Is that uh, where did that come along in your uh, career progression? And uh, tell us a little bit uh, uh, how that came together. That song uh, it was written in 1985, and I wrote it. I co-wrote it with a with a with a gentleman named Walt Nims, and Walt Nims he was the the guy that wrote. Precious and Few for Sonny Geraci. Wow, that's a big hit, man. And I was managed at that time by Tom King, who was, he was formerly The Outsiders. He wrote Time Won't Let Me. He was one of the writers of the song. One of my favorites when I was a kid. I loved that song when I was a kid. Yeah, so he Tom was managing me at the time. He was, uh, we, he was trying to get a deal in the whole nine yards and Walt was a, you know, Walt was part of the Outsiders at one time. So Walt would, he he was living in Los Angeles, but he would fly into Cleveland every once in a while and stay with Tom. That was a big hit. That was a big hit. Yeah, Walt had this idea of of he had the kind of the he basically had the structure of the song like the verse. And what was the name of the band that, that you did that song with? Never again without you. Well, it technically it wasn't really a band at that point. It was a, it was a bunch of um, I guess locally the studio players Kevin Hupp who went on to uh, play with Edgar Winter and and Rick Derringer. He was the drummer. Uh, Bill Vendetti uh, was the bass player on on the track. So we weren't really a band. It, these were guys that would. Uh, that would like say Paul Hammond from uh, from Sumo Recording, right, right. Call for sessions. So in uh, Jim Madden played keys. Tom produced the record. Um, the song was written at uh, at his house, where like I say, Walt had kind of a basic idea of the verse. So was that was that released somewhere on a label? It was released as a single back then because we had like a when, when we had singles, yes. Yes, but it was uh, we had a thing going with Columbia Records where if we gave them three song, two more songs, or three more songs as strong as that one, I would have gotten an album deal. But at the same time, it was like a lot of wrong decisions were made by you or just everybody. I guess it wouldn't be me because I was basically just the talent. Oh, I see. Okay, you weren't in control of the situation, right? These were management decisions that might not have been good ones. And uh, long story short, the uh, the record got played on MMS but the more the record got played the more people were coming out of the out of the out of the woodwork for lawsuits because these were investors the music business blows sometimes doesn't it, it basically killed it killed it before it even came alive so that was that's the story of my recording career wow <laughs> and that was the only record you've done i've done other records basically the what you played it was a remake of the of the original so how did you ha end up with herman's hermits man gary lewis when gary lewis and the playboys lived in cleveland I met him. I love that song, This Diamond Ring. He was, believe it or not, he was living in Cleveland. No way, really? 1979 till about, uh, well, till about, I would say, 1995 is when he left. Wow, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Well, he married his fourth wife, Patty. She was from Cleveland. Them Cleveland girls do it, I tell you. Yep, so he was, he was living here, and I'll never forget it. This was 1980. I go down to the Pirate's Cove in the flats, and Gary's up there on stage singing, he's singing, uh, my my Sharona by the knack. <laughs> he's up there going, oh, my little pretty woman. He was, <laughs> and he was busting one of his hips. I would have loved to see that, man. That was great. You know, and uh, 
I didn't start playing with him until about maybe six years later, where he needed a band. He was going to Europe, but he wanted to do a slimmed-down four-piece band to where he played guitar. And he's a very capable uh, guitar player to play his own stuff. Oh, that's cool. So, so he would play guitar. I was the drummer. No way, really? Yeah. I was the drummer, and uh, I would be. My role was what when when Gary would get back and play drums, I would play. We would switch. Right, right. So that was like the you know just the slim down. But like I was with Gary for twenty three years. No way, that's a long time. Three years, and during those twenty three years, the bands. So you were you were in that whole circuit with all those oldies right. tours and everything, right? That's when it started. And that's how you met Herman, right? Yeah. So the Playboys, we would back up other. 60s artist peter noon not herman he, he's I, I consider him bald he he, he he is herman he is herman that's true we backed him up uh the first time back in like 1988 or 89 and and over the course of the years we would back him up again and then basically i got an offer to, to be in his band full time uh, this was back in 2009 and he was and still, he's the one that works out of all those artists. He still works the most. I know you're uh, you. You guys are playing all over the place. Yeah, and he still sounds great. He still sounds like the record. And he's a hell of an entertainer. He is, and he looks. He doesn't look a day over. I mean, he looks young still. Yeah. Well, you know, he was when he had his hits, the like uh, the very first hit, "I'm into something good." He was about 15 years old. Yeah, he, he was, looks really young on that one. On on yeah, Ed so Sullivan. <laughs> about a good five to seven years younger than the Beatles, but he, he's got great stories. I remember walking to school and remembering hearing that song, No Milk Today, My Baby's Gonna just always stuck in my head. Yeah, I love that song. I had the, That was the, uh, there's a kind of hush in the flip yeah, side. Yeah, that was the first one. That was the big yeah. one. Yeah, that was the big one. Well, you know, during all those years of backing him up, he remembered me and uh, called and said, look, uh, Good for you, man. I said, sure. I love that. I love that music. I mean, and it's hard enough to do anything in the music business where you have any kind of way to make a living at it and still be able right. to play something enjoyable. Yeah. And you're doing it. That's I, my hat's off to you, brother. Thank you. Well, it's really been great. So what's going on now with Billy? I mean, uh, tell us about your little gigs around town and, and all the other stuff you're doing. And yeah, I, basically, I, I call... Uh, we got about 10 more minutes here. Okay. I, I Basically, touring with Peter is obviously the day, the day job. Now, is that a nine-month... Are you guys nine months out of the year, or, or you get a time, any time off? It's always a revolving, a, a constant updating tour schedule. In other words, are you on? You're on call, basically, right? Yeah, I mean, we have a schedule, but a date can come in. It, it would be kind of hard to like say, Peter, I'd like to go on vacation. Uh, right. Uh, you know, so it, there's times where we do slow down. We slow down a bit in, uh, in July of all months. Is he a nice guy? Is he a nice guy? He's a very nice guy. Very nice guy. Very funny. Uh, very funny. Great sense of humor. He, he looks like he's a really cool guy. Yeah, he is. He is definitely. And 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 uh, the whole band. I mean, you guys really are a bunch of really good musicians backing up Peter. Yeah, I mean, it's really. uh, myself and Rich Spina, which the two of us we played together for, uh, lots of times over the years, and uh, we're the Cleveland guys that are in the group. Uh, Vance Brescia, the other guitarist that's next to me on the stage. Is that the guy with the long hair? Yes, he's got a history. Is he British? He looks British. He, believe it or not, he's from New York. No way. 
Long Island, New York, and he wrote. Uh, remember the remember the it was this this would have been the 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 mid eighties where MTV picked up on on reviving the monkeys and they and uh, they had the, a comeback record called That Was Then This Is Now. I remember that. Yes, Vance was the one he wrote that song. No that. way, really. So he's. I uh, hope he got some money off of the deal. I think he did okay. I think he, he never told me, but I, I would imagine he did okay. I mean, that was a big hit. So, yeah, between Vance and myself and Rich and uh, Dave, our drummer, he lives in Los Angeles. Now, Dave, he's got an interesting story. You know, he's he's a great 60s garage type of drummer, but he's also he's a great metal drummer. Oh, wow. You'd never know that. He lives in Los Angeles, and he plays in all the—when we're not touring, he plays in all these metal groups. That's that's killer. He, he'll He'll tour. I wish I offhand. I wish I knew some of the bands. I bet you, you, you of all people, Mike, would know them because he's done a couple of European tours during our off times. Uh, but I, I can't think of the band name right now. But, uh, but that's what Dave does. And, um, and if I'm not touring with Peter, I'm kind of doing some local things here. Uh, occasionally, I go back to Chicago because uh, I, I lived there for for a short period of time for about eight years, and uh, I get back there every once in a while. But it all revolves around Peter's schedule, so it's kind of hard to plan. That's the only. That's that's the only bad thing about trying to plan a something around here because it's uh, it's almost hard to you know to try to predict if I'm going to be off or not. Well, you seem pretty busy with your other uh, shows. Where you? Well, do you have uh, music that you pre-recorded music that you play behind you when you're up there by yourself? Is that what it is? No, I, I well, I used to do that when I started doing the solo thing about 20 years ago. But I found out really hard uh, when I was living in Chicago where I. Where I got hired somewhere and I played, and the club owner came right up to me and said, "Look, we didn't hire we we hired a, a singing guitar player, not a not a karaoke guy." <laughs> Is that what okay. he said to you, really? Yeah, because there's enough. so many guys around here that do that. I mean, I know a whole bunch of guys that do that. I used from that point on, I just stopped. I it, it, it was kind of hard to manage. To me, it's like it, it's you're trying to you're occupied trying to get the next track up. You got an audience of you. I, I just stopped doing it. So I just I try to be as musical as I can, just with the guitar and singing. And I think the only gimmick gimmick thing that I would have now is I have a harmony pedal that I kick on if I'm doing something by the like the Eagles or something. If there's a harmony, I can kick it on. So that's like the only gimmick that I have going on when I do a solo thing. So what's your favorite acts right now that you're you're playing out of your collection? What is your main your main? Because I see you play with a bunch of you got that three thirty five Epiphone that you're in love with. I know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, when I'm doing solo, I'm mainly acoustic. Uh, so it depends on where I'm playing. So if I if I look out there and I see I see people our age. Uh, I'm going to hit them with Baby Boomer stuff. The Buffalo Springfield, the Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones. Um, if there's anybody kind of younger, uh, I'll hit them with some probably, you know, I, there's a couple, maybe a couple songs from today I would do. But it's mainly, I mainly do, it's more in the Baby Boomer era. The stuff we grew up on. Well, I think I'm a little older than you, but we all grew up on that great music we did. We sure did, yes. Well, Billy, thank you for coming on Renegade Rock. Do you have any parting words for our listeners before you say goodbye? Well, thanks for tuning into the show. Thanks for... Uh, thank you for being interested in music in general, because it, it seems that uh, in today's society, it seems that music is not as important to people than it used to be. I hope I'm wrong about that. And I don't want to offend anybody by saying that, but just 
I just want to thank you guys for tuning in on a on Mike's show, tuning and listening to his records or being interested in anything concerning music. Thank you for that. And thanks for coming on, Billy. And I hope that someday we can work together again and, and I can have you on another record. I'd really enjoy oh, that. Oh, I, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. And we'll have to start planning the next Guitar Army record, all right? All right, you got it. Give me a call. So thanks again, Billy Sullivan, Renegade Rock. We'll see you next week, kids. Spend